I pray that the technical difficulties that are going on wouldn't be an issue, Lord, um, that you would bring resolution to the problem. God, this sermon that I'm about to preach is one that is not uh, really culturally favorable, but you have put it in the text of Scripture, and we have stumbled across it, and so we have to deal with it. So I pray that you would give me the wisdom that I need, Lord, to address this topic as a young, inexperienced preacher. I pray, Lord, that the body would be receptive to what it is that I have to say, knowing that your spirit led me through the preparation, and it's also going to carry me through the proclamation. I pray that this sermon wouldn't be the end-all, be-all of the conversation, but it, it would be the springboard to ongoing conversation. That this topic would be something that is constantly on our lips. That we would be comfortable in the discomfort of the dialogue around things like this. Because we want to grow, Lord. But we're looking to you to produce in us the growth. I pray that today would be a day that seeds are planted and water is poured, but we look to you, God, for the growth. So, Lord, do whatever it is that you have to do. Remove distractions. Give us the time that we need to unpack this. Give me the words that I need to speak clearly, Lord, for your glory, God, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so for those of you who may be with us for the first time visiting or newer to the church, we're in a sermon series on 1 Peter. And we're just going to jump right in. Today's portion of the text comes to us from chapter 2. We're dealing with verse 13 through 17. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Can we just erase this? It doesn't work like that, though, right? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Oh, man. That makes it even tougher, knowing that this is the will of God, that by doing good... You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as a people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Yeah, it says everyone. Every single person. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. Sometimes when you just slow down and read the Bible, it's like, really? <laughs> the topic of submission in 2022 in America? Where I should be living my best life now based on whatever it is that I want to do, however it is that I want to do it, and if you think I should not do any of the things that I'm doing, you should be canceled? <laughs> Lord. <laughs> 
can't I just skip this part in the letter? And he's like, no. <laughs> no, you can't. God, I've only been preaching weekly for a little over a year. I've been a Christian for less than a decade. And you want me to address the topic of submission in a group of people that has an age range that is diverse. Experiences from different places at different times with different people. Yes, that's what I want you to do. No, I don't want to do it. And I don't want to get up here and be like a fundamentalist who's like, well, it just says what it means. Just read your Bible. We heard that at the men's breakfast this week, and I was so irritated. Somebody looked at Rob and was like, just read your Bible, bro. And I was like, <laughs> I was literally in a conversation with you on the phone two weeks ago, and you told me, do you think that it's right that people just read their Bible? And in a moment, he just pops off at the mouth. And just tells you, just read your Bible, bro. Like it requires no interpretation. Like pump your brakes, brother. <laughs> oh, man, we're supposed to be loving one another in here. And it's like we can't wait for someone to just say the thing that we don't like and then click, clack, boom. Got him. <laughs> there it is. Grace, though. Right? Many words, the, the wisdom literature says, is the playground for hurt. Many words is the playground for hurt. But the wise man stays silent. The testimony of the first witness to speak, oh, he always sounds dead on. Until you hear the testimony of the second witness. And then it calls everything into question. Like, these are things we have to have in the back of our mind when we begin to even approach the topic of submission. Not only are we separated from the text by thousands of years, not only are they communalistic and we're individualistic, but there's language, geography, culture, customs. It's all different. So when someone is like, just read your Bible, bro. This is what the Bible says. <laughs> it's like, I get it. I get it, dude. I know where you're coming from, but let's slow down and let's think critically about this because God has given us a rational, logical, cognitive brain, and he has called us to engage with one another from a foundation of love. So let's talk about this thing as if there is nuance that should be a part of the discussion because it should most definitely be a part of the discussion. There are very similar portions of what is written here in 1 Peter in Romans and in Ephesians and in Colossians. But just because they're similar, it doesn't mean they're exactly the same. The occasion and the situation for each letter was different. The people group, the customs, the language even varied most likely for the people groups that it was written to. Yes, they would have all spoke the common tongue, but what would their mother tongue have been? What were their traditions that differed from Colossae to Ephesus? Did it matter in how the gospel was proclaimed, understood, and actually lived out? If there was a missionary in the house today who was global, they'd stand up and be like, absolutely! 110%! 
No ifs, ands, or buts. There would be variances. And yet we, little small town folk from Anchorage, come to this portion in the text and we're like, oh, it's easy. Just submit. Just listen to me when I talk about submission. Because I'm the one who's got it all figured out. At 40 years old, <laughs> with no kids, I'm in my second marriage. It's like, <laughs> I bring very little to the table. All things with God are possible. But apart from Him, this man can do nothing. And so we need to creep and crawl our way through this today. Knowing that this is one part of what Peter has to say about submission. And that he's going to continue to talk about submission in different aspects as he talks about slaves and masters, the master Jesus Christ himself, wives with unbelieving husbands, believing husbands with their wives. Different context would imply different approach. And if Peter puts different context in the letter, there's probably more than one way to skin this cat. So when someone tells you, just read your Bible, <laughs> say, I'll do that. But I'll also acknowledge that studying my Bible is different than reading it. It's like saying, I studied that topic because I listened to a book on Audible. No, bro, you listened to a book on Audible. You didn't study the topic. You didn't write about it. You didn't dialogue with anybody about it. And you definitely didn't have someone look at what you wrote about and spoke about and assess it and tell you where you were right and where you were wrong who actually specialized in the field. That's what studying looks like. Studying is not done in isolation. Even the Essenes, even those at Qumran, they were never alone. Studying is done communally. So we're going to study the topic of submission this morning together. And I'm admitting that I'm bringing very little to the table apart from what it is that God has given me. What He's given us in His Word. So when we read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13-17, we have just been introduced to what's most commonly referred to as a household or station code. Raise your hand if you knew that. We got one, two. So we're dealing with new information here. Well, not really. It doesn't really matter if I know that it's, you know, like something that existed in antiquity. No, it actually does. <laughs> it actually will frame the way that you think about it. New Testament scholar Daryl Charles notes that household codes appearing in antiquity exist to reiterate duties and obligations that encompass the family sphere. Raise your hand if you have an unwritten household code that your family operates by. So we're not unfamiliar with it, but we're not necessarily familiar with it either. You see how there's nuance in the discussion already? <laughs> Typically, these codes address men and women children masters and slaves do we have masters and slaves in america anymore praise god that we don't but we do have employers and employees so there is a similarity but there's still a distinction there's more nuance did we catch it daryl charles wrote household codes appearing in antiquity 
which means that this sort of thing is not exclusive to the text of Scripture. This is not original to the Bible. Peter was not sitting in a room in a house with Silvanus while he was scribing a letter with the help of John Mark going, guys, I need to do something new. The church needs something new. I'm going to take this new wine and old wineskins thing and I'm just going to abuse the crap out of it because I think the church needs something new. He's not doing that. He's like, I need to speak to my people in a way that they're going to understand. I'm removed from them geographically. There's thousands of miles that I would have to travel to get there. I'm going to have to speak to them in a way that they know and they understand. So I'm going to borrow something that exists in culture already so that when they read it, it clicks. Peter's not looking to be innovative here. As a matter of fact, modern scholarship is convinced that these type of codes, they can be traced all the way back to the life of Aristotle. We have documentation that traces them all the way back to the life of Aristotle, which means that they had a function and purpose in different societies as early as the 3rd and 4th century B.C., and now if we say this is not important information when we come to the Bible, we're just wrong. We're flat out wrong. This is the historical context of the text itself. And it matters. Now, ancient authors would utilize these household codes as a sort of narrative. What is narrative? It's story. They would utilize these household codes as a sort of narrative offering instructions for ideal relationships within households. Now, by the time the first century, co- by the time the first century rolled around, Like, these things were being implemented left and right. They were being regularly employed. Today, we would say they're being tweeted about frequently, made famous by groups such as the Stoics and the Hellenistic Judaizers. Are we aware of who the Stoics are and the Hellenistic Judaizers are? Some of us are probably more aware of the Hellenist Judaizers because of Paul's letter to Galatia that we studied. However... These codes were being utilized by different groups, different sects, different worldviews, different philosophies that existed in the first century. It's for these reasons, church. It's for these reasons and others that the New Testament authors, authors plural, not just Peter, decided to adopt and implement these codes into the letters that they wrote to God's church. Can we appreciate the reality that the apostles were totally comfortable taking something that was culturally relevant, something that they know everyone would understand and utilizing it for the sake of advancing the gospel. Are we comfortable with that? Today, the church is berated by the church for being relevant. The apostles were relevant. Jesus was a relevant teacher. Because Jesus was a relevant teacher and because the apostles were relevant in their own culture, we should want to be relevant in the proclamation of the gospel. So it begs the question, is our gospel presentation culturally relevant or is it so dated that no one understands what it is that we're saying when we attempt to evangelize or equip? That's what we, like, we're asking the hard questions this morning. We're getting the brain warmed up because we're talking about submission. 
I'm telling you that Jesus was a relevant teacher. He could speak to anyone. The Samaritan woman. She could understand him. No different than his own disciples. In fact, more clearly than his own disciples. The apostles could leave Jerusalem, Samaria, and Judea and go into the ends of the earth and they could communicate to different people groups speaking different languages and different cultures and different geographical locations in the world and they could plant effective churches, churches that are still around today. The Ethiopic church, one of the earliest churches. The Armenian church, one of the earliest churches. They were successful in what it is that they were doing because when they spoke, people understood what they were saying. It's not like they spoke so lofty, things went over the head. So we got to ask ourselves, when we speak, are we relevant? I hope so. I may not be, which is probably why our church has 50 people in it, but I'm thankful for all of you when there are churches that have thousands. And that's not a stab on you. That's just acknowledging the fact that I'm a young preacher. And there are way uh, more qualified individuals out there who exist. And my goal is that we would stay here and grow together. But if you got to go, we will bless you and send you. If you're bringing people, praise God. Right? I've been falling prey to the enemy, to the whispers of the enemy, thinking that people are like on their way out the door. And they're like, no, fool, you can't get rid of me. Right, Jen? (laughs) Amen. But I want to make sure that I'm not dishonoring people, that I'm not offending people, that I'm not pushing them away. Because I have that capacity. I am a human being. You know, I can make, I can make you mad. <laughs> I'm not Matt Cain, right? I'm a different kind of Matt. <laughs> can you guys read this next slide for me, please? We're talking about cultural relevance. (laughs) I know, right? But let's just close it and leave. We got donuts, right? (laughs) Cultural relevance can be a difficult thing to manage, right? If you're too relevant, if you're striving to be relevant for the wrong reasons, right? Cultural relevance can be a difficult thing to manage, let alone to master when it comes to topics like submission, especially in the current cultural climate. However, statements such as submission is difficult to talk about today, those statements beg the question, why are topics like submission so difficult to talk about today? Well, I would argue that it's probably due to a lack of understanding. That's what I would argue. People think they have the understanding. That's a problem. And then some people are like, I have no understanding that's a problem. And we want to be somewhere in the middle of those two perspectives. A willingness to learn. So one might argue that it's a lack of understanding. I would say that to some degree, even in my minimal experience over the last 10 years, the church has failed to properly define such terms. In fact, I was a part of a church for a long time that sucked at defining terms. Broad brushstroke statements... And then, you know, they just expected everybody to understand what it was that they were communicating. And it was like, wait a second, whoa, big things seem to be changing and turning here. And like, can I get a little bit more explanation? And they're like, no, just go read this book. Like, oh, man. 
pastor me through this, please. Shepherd me through this. Teach me about this. Walk with me and talk with me. Right? (laughs) Ah, but that takes time and effort. I just want your tithe dollars, yo. Like, what? (laughs) You know, my wife and I have been there. All right? In state and out of state. Local organizations and global organizations. My wife and I have been there. Peter writes, be subject. Literally submit. So when we read this, we got to hit the brakes and we got to be responsible to define submission in a way that the current culture can comprehend it. That's what we have to do. We got to define terminology. So what does it mean to submit? Is it blind obedience? Is submission blind obedience? Is submission blind allegiance? Now around here we believe that context determines meaning. So before we attempt to offer up an answer, we're going to read from the text in a horizontal fashion to see if it can help us better understand what it is that Peter's after. So I'm going to need three volunteers this morning. I'm going to go from the smallest portion in the text that we're reading to the largest. Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. Deb, you have your Bible. Can you read Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17? Uh, Let's see. Uh, Tommy, can you read Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 through 16? And then, uh, let's see, Art, can you read Genesis chapter 39, verse 1 through 20? Now look, these are large portions of the text. If you came to church, hopefully you brought your Bible, because then you can read along. Everybody's got a phone. Nobody left home without their phone, which meant nobody left home without their Bible. So go ahead and look these up. We're going to read through them. We're cruising today, and we're taking our time, because I think it's worth it. Mark, chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. There it is. Jesus himself makes a categorical distinction between what we must render in submission and obedience to Caesar and what we must render in obedience to God. Now, this is a very radical statement in the first century. Very radical, because if you are living anywhere where Rome has authority, then the imperial cult is being practiced which means that Caesar is being worshipped as Lord. But what does Jesus say? He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, horizontally, Jesus is speaking, render to God what is God's, vertically. He is making a categorical distinction between the man who rules and reigns in Rome and the God who is seated on the throne. And he says, you must 
submit and give to the one what is his. Don't compromise here, though, because you're going to be called to give to God what's God's. So Jesus himself speaks to the authority of the local and global governing authorities. All humans, by the way. So let's look at Daniel. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 16. Go ahead, Tommy. If you are struggling with names, just blow by them. It doesn't matter. I'll read to verse 16, please. Did we catch it? Daniel resolved in his heart, verse 8, maybe in his mind, that he would not defile himself with the king's food. It was the king who authorized the menu. It was the king who put a pro-council over the exiles who were to potentially serve in his court. And Daniel says, hmm, I'm not going to defile myself. Now, this is a religious term. The Mosaic Covenant dealt with ritual purity and ritual impurity. 
And when Daniel says, I refuse to defile myself, he's saying, I will not make myself impure before the Lord, according to Torah, by consuming this type of food. Now, at minimum, Daniel's questioning authority. At maximum, he may have to reject the menu of the king and the decree of the king. But God looks on him with favor and compassion, and things work out for Daniel. He is submissive, but his submissiveness is not blind obedience. Are we able to see the nuance there? Okay. Now let's look at Joseph. Genesis chapter 39, verse 1 through 20. Did we catch it? Verse 9. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph, like Daniel and like the master, makes a category distinction between man 
and God. And his desire is to be obedient and submissive to God. And at great cost to himself. We have to understand that this is the ancient Near East. This is a caste system, right? India is very, it functions very close to how this would function. There is the master of the house who is an upper caste and the slave or the servant in the house, which is a lower caste. And even though Joseph says, well, I've been made equal in the house with Potiphar, he's not saying anything more than I have equal authority to rule the house with all of the work that has to be done. But when the wife of the master speaks to Joseph as a servant and a slave, he is required to respond because his caste as a servant is lower than the caste of the master. And he denies, he does not submit to the request of the human being so that he can be obedient to God by not being promiscuous with this woman. He also knows that he wouldn't just be sinning against God, but he would be sinning against Potiphar. So we have clear categorical distinctions when we read the text of Scripture horizontally about what submission looks like and how it's nuanced and how it's not really black or white, but it's case-dependent. Who are we submitting to? Why are we submitting to them? What's the motivation behind it? What are we in pursuit of? All of these things matter when we're discussing the topic of submission. So it's only after looking at the words of the master, right, and serving two different sets of circumstances from the lives of the patriarch that I feel we're finally ready to even offer an answer. Submission is not blind obedience. Submission is not blind allegiance. Here's how we're going to define submission in this context, the context of this letter in regard to the words that Peter's speaking to the five churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter's guidance to the church is that we as Christians must be ready to responsibly occupy our place in society without compromising our position in Christ. That's our definition of submission in this context. Let me say that again. As Christians, we must be ready to responsibly occupy, occupy our place in society without compromising our position in Christ. That's what submission looks like to Peter. He knows that he has a diverse audience, so he's not going to give a one-and-done type bumper sticker claim to what submission looks like. He's going to give a general thing, and wisdom would dictate that we use that as a foundation to build from, as opposed to saying, it means this. For you and everyone else, in every situation. This is why Peter can write, be subject for the Lord's sake. We don't do it for our sake, and we definitely don't do it for the sake of others. We do it for the sake of the Lord. Everything we do, do heartily as if you're doing it to the Lord, another New Testament writer would say. If the Christian community is going to demonstrate a high level of consistency... If the church, the bride of Christ, is going to demonstrate a high level of relevance in a pagan society, then our faith must show itself viable in the way that it both understands and responds to the outside authority. Because the outside authority is just that. It is our authority too. Ooh, I don't like this, Matt. Me neither. We're just dealing with what the Word says. Raise your hand if you know and understand that what we choose to do in this life matters. Last week we talked about that, both privately and publicly. What we do in this life, what we do with our bodies, it matters. 
from the outsider's perspective, if we, the children of God, refuse to act socially responsible, our actions may nullify our Christian witness. That's a terrible thing to be found guilty of. We do not want our actions to nullify our Christian witness. As Christians, we should submit, here's our definition, i.e. responsibly occupy our place in society, not because we have to, but because we freely choose to do so. Amen? Amen. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Wait, wait. No, no, this should be slide 63. There you go. Can you guys read this out loud for me? I don't know about you guys, but I love it when New Testament authors, I just love it when any author really has got the gumption, <laughs> some other words I can't use, has just got it in them to make strong statements, right? This is a strong statement. Every human institution, don't you think this could cause some confusion, Peter? And he goes, well, yeah, but let me define exactly what I mean in my next sentence so that there is no question about what it is that I'm saying when I say every human institution. Here's what Peter means. He gives us two phrases, whether to the emperor is supreme or to governors. So you want to interpret what it is that Peter means by every human institution? Let him define it since it's his letter. That's what I would say. Don't come with all these, well, yeah, he's also going to throw in this and include this, but he didn't have enough room on the parchment. So, you know, like, but church tradition would tell us that this is what is included as well. Well, thanks. I'm going to go with Peter here. <laughs> like we got to define things, church. It's important. Leave no man behind. Leave no woman behind. Leave no child behind. We need to define things clearly. Peter immediately defines human authority with these two phrases. Now, we've got some brothers and sisters in the church, everybody. <laughs> and we, might lock, we might not like to admit it, but we got them. They're there. They exist. They're going to be in heaven with us for all of eternity. And they've actually bought into the lie that submission is only exchanged in-house. Submission is actually only required of me from one Christian brother to another. The government has no rule over me because I'm God's child. Well, Peter seems to argue against that way of thinking. <laughs> he does, right here in his letter. If we read this in context, Peter is one step away from dropping names and titles. He is. We could read this. Be subject to Caesar. He's the king. He's supreme. Also be subject to his proconsul. Yeah, you know, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Festus, Agrippa, etc., etc. And Peter could give examples in his own life of people he knew and loved who chose to submit. And Peter could give examples of people who chose to submit at the cost of their own life. Jesus stood judged and condemned before Pontius Pilate. James, the brother of John, lost his head to Herod. 
And Festus and Agrippa stood and judged Paul, sending him on to Caesar, not because it's what they wanted to do, but because Paul had made the request to go see Caesar. All of the people that I just mentioned submitted themselves to the authority. Peter was not naive. He was well aware that the Roman government had two basic rules. When we think about the Roman government and how they mandated their own uh, principal structure, they had two basic rules. To reward the benefactor and to punish the criminal. There it is. To punish and to praise. Peter's culturally relevant. He knows what's going on in his own backyard. By the way, this is how most governments then and now maintain order. They reward the good and they punish the wicked. The reward for the good in America is being left alone. And that's reward enough. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Sometimes we forget that. Like we're owed more. Ah, Try walking a mile in their shoes. Peter also knew that the Roman government would be imperfect in their attempt to administer justice. Do we give that concession to our own government? Any human organization is going to fail to do things perfectly because by definition they're human. And yet in the back of his mind, P Peter was willing to concede that even the most oppressive imperial regimes have the ability, they do to some degree, to restrain evil. And even the most repressive imperial regimes in their attempt to restrain evil when they want to, they prevent society from collapsing into total anarchy. And total anarchy is better than no government, is, is worse than no government at all. It's for this reason that Peter encourages the brethren to fulfill their appointed functions within culture. There's our definition of submission. Whether it be slave or master, fulfill your appointed function within culture through willful submission. And let me be the first to remind us, church, in America, our submission to the governing authorities should not be viewed as an endorsement of the rulers themselves. It's not. My obedience to the law is not an endorsement of the politicians. It isn't. We don't need to fall into that trap or fall prey to that accusation. If anything, our submission needs to be viewed as an act of devotion to God because we serve Him first and foremost. And if He says submit, then if they ain't trying to ask me to sin, sorry, i got to submit. I believe it's for this reason that Peter decided to open his household code with the line, be subject for the Lord's sake. It's as if we can hear him now as he's writing to the church. I am familiar with your sufferings. I have been beaten. I have been arrested. I have had my life hanging in the balance prior to being delivered supernaturally from the chains in prison. Your suffering is familiar to me. I know what you're going through. However, like Joseph, like the prophet Daniel, and like the Messiah, we must decide that whenever human authorities are not requiring us to dishonor God, we must choose a position of submission. That's what Peter's saying. This is a hard word, Peter. I don't like it. but i got to do something about it, so I might as well be obedient. For those of us who wonder why, like me, I'm a rebel. 
I mean, look at me. <laughs> you know, like, you shouldn't tattoo your hands. <laughs> you know, I have a rebellious streak in me that God is working out. On his timeline, by the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> but for those of us who kick against the codes, because <laughs> we do, we ask why. Why do we even have to talk about submission, let alone do it? Peter's about to tell us why. Can you guys read this next slide for me? You ever meet someone and they're like, I just want to know the will of God for my life. I just want to know the will of God for my life. I just want to know the will of God for my life. Well, there it is. Submit to the local authorities. Live your life in an honorable way. Conduct yourself in a worthy manner. Be a virtuous person. And then make whatever decision you have to make. Augustine said it. Love God. Do whatever you want. <laughs> it's pretty good advice if you actually love God. Why do we submit? Why do we strive to do good to everyone? Peter said it's the will of God. It's the will of God, church. Notice how direct Peter is. He's not like sugarcoating, cutting corners, trying to dodge and weave, shuck and jive. He's very direct. Having just discussed the necessity of submission and defined it, he now writes, do good. Peter's claim, Peter's hope, is that by doing good, we should silence all condemnation. This goes hand in hand with what we learned last week. By doing good, you may silence all condemnation. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand this. Right? What it is that Peter's attempting to communicate here, this is a strategic statement. Peter's not making a promise here. If you're obedient, church, Peter's not saying prosperity here. If you're obedient, they're going to leave you alone. That's not what Peter's doing. He's not saying, look, if you submit, you will silence the ignorant every time. He's not saying that. This is a strategy for the church. Live an upright life. So that when they bring a false accusation against you, in the end, the evidence will prove otherwise. That's what Peter's saying. We cannot misunderstand what it is that Peter's attempting to communicate in verse 15. Strategic statements. Peter's well aware that the church is suffering local persecution. The end of their persecution is nowhere in sight. However, he reminds them that if you are to suffer... It is better to suffer for doing good. See chapter 3, verse 17, and chapter 4, verse 19, for a greater context surrounding the immediate context. Can you guys read this next slide for me? Freedom. Freedom doesn't equal doing whatever you want. It doesn't. Not to Peter, at least. There are some people who would define freedom that way, but we have a different definition. Oh, well, their definition's wrong. You know, before you club them on the head and berate them and beat them up for it, ask them if they recognize Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, and if not, you should understand that they are enslaved to their sin nature, and they really don't have a choice in the matter. 
They can be a moral and an ethical person, but ultimately they can do no good. In his commentary on 1 Peter, Foy Valentine reminds the church that Christian freedom is not a freedom of lawlessness. Christian freedom is a careful discipline to Jesus Christ as Lord. It is a careful discipline to Jesus Christ as Lord. Our freedom in Christ functions through our submission to Christ. This is why Peter reminds us to live as servants of God. Verse 16 is one of those New Testament passages that is saturated in Old Testament theology. Do we understand that freedom, true freedom is conditioned by responsibility? True freedom is conditioned by responsibility. Let's look at the Exodus narrative to see if we can find this truth claim to prove itself relevant. Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve you, serve me in the wilderness. Their freedom is not for nothing. Their release has a purpose. Let's look at the next one. 8.1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may what? There it is again. How about the next one? Exodus 8.20. Let my people go that they may serve me. Next one. 9.1. Let my people go that they may serve me. Next one. 9.13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. Is there another one? Okay. let that sit for a moment let my people go ah that's where we like to stop that's like the prince of egypt right there pharaoh let my people go you forgot though bro y'all forgot you're tripping that if you actually are released you're released to servitude I love the words of Joel Green. The whole point of the Exodus is not freedom, but service. The whole point of the Exodus is not, sir, it's not freedom, but service. I love the words of New Testament author, uh, uh, New Testament uh, commentator Dave, Peter Davids, who writes that freedom is not the release from bondage to a state of autonomy. It's a release from bondage to become a slave to God. These are strong statements. According to the Apostle Peter, it is the will of God that we submit. According to the Apostle Peter, it is the will of God that we do good. According to the Apostle Peter, it is the will of God that we live as a people who are free. Free to serve God. Not live any way we want. Church, our freedom in Christ is conditioned by responsibility. And in this context, the responsibility is to show proper respect to everyone. Can you guys read this next slide for me? I don't know if it gets any more clear than that. Statement period, statement period, statement period, statement period. These are four imperatives in the Greek. 
the theology and the doctrine of the New Testament is consistent, it's logical, and it's just. It holds that a man or a woman cannot accept the privileges which the state provides without also accepting the responsibilities and the duties which it demands. Did we hear that? We cannot in honor and decency take everything and give nothing in return, which is why verse 17 is key. The church is not a consuming leech on the back of society. We're not. You cannot take everything without giving. And in fact, we're called to be very generous, something that you guys do very well, by the way. I want to commend you in that. Peter brings the opening section of his household code to a close by reminding us that we are to honor everyone. There are churches out there whose websites are www.godhatesfags.com. That's the church's website. You may have heard of them, the Westboro Baptist Church. They exist. That's their website. One question for Westboro Baptists. Are you honoring everyone? They're so concerned with the truth that they fail to meet this command. That's a problem for the church. The church gets so wrapped around the, angle, the, the axle when it comes to the truth, the truth, the truth, the truth, the truth, no compromise, that we end up dishonoring everybody. That's why Peter brings the opening section of his household code to a close by reminding us that we are to honor all. Paul would say in Galatians in chapter 6, do good to everyone, especially to those in the household of faith. So this term everyone, it means everyone. Even the ones that don't like us too, Tommy. Not just the ones we don't like, the ones that don't like us. As spirit-filled believers, we must treat every person with dignity and respect. That means that the LGBTQ community, we have to treat them with dignity and respect, even when we disagree with a lifestyle choice. Dignity and respect, people. The Democrats and the Republicans in the House, yo, you need to sit at the same table and treat one another with dignity and respect. That's a fact. The Calvinist and the Arminian, y'all have to sit in the same table and love on one another. They're both wrong, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's me. Like, I'm, you know, like, I do it. I set myself up and I step into my own trap. Don't do this, guys. Whoa. <laughs> We're, I mean, we're bent this way, right? Born innocent and bound to sin at a moment. <laughs> Honor everyone. As spirit-filled believers, we must treat every person with dignity and respect. Too often we forget that each person, each person has been fearfully and wonderfully made. Each person has been created in the image and likeness of God. And God died for all of us. Not just for the sins of the church, John writes in his letter, but for the whole world. The sins of the whole 
world. <sighs> Peter makes a distinction. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Peter makes a distinction here between honor for everyone and love for the brotherhood. William Barclay writes that this, this is Peter's way of gently reminding the church that Christianity functions within community. Christianity functions within community. The Christian is not an isolated unit. He is a member of community, a living stone grounded on the chief cornerstone, a living stone grounded on the living stone. Peter would say that in chapter 1. So William Barclay's right. And it's within this community that the Christian operates extending the freedom that he's been granted. Christian freedom is therefore the freedom to serve. We are servants of God, the previous verse. As children of God, we must never forget that love, agape love, the love of the Father that we get, it always seeks the good of others before seeking the good of its own. This is why Jesus could lay his life down willingly for those who were at enmity with him. He was seeking the good of others before seeking the good of his own. Therefore, the greatest act of love is rendered in service to others. Do you know who's greatest in the kingdom of God? Yeah, the one who serves. The servant is the greatest in the kingdom of God. It's like God takes our world and just flips it upside down on its head. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In the close of verse 17, we're wrapping it up here, I promise. The apostle Peter embraces the same category distinctions of the master that we noted in verse 12. The emperor is not God. Therefore, the emperor receives the same honor that every human being receives. It doesn't matter if it's the king or if it's the lowliest slave. Peter says honor everybody. And he's making the same radical ca uh, categorical distinction that Jesus was making. Caesar is not God. We as the church are required to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. We as the church are going to be held responsible for not compromising on that and rendering to God what is God's. Human authority is just that. It's human authority. Therefore, we honor them no different than we should honor anyone else. Fear, fear belongs to God alone. Because it's God who determines existence and non-existence. These are the words of the master. Fear God, who has the ability to destroy both body and soul. We don't fear man. We honor man. We fear God. We've talked about this, church. We can fear God and say that there is not just an awe or a reverence. That's watered down, right? We don't fear God the Father because he's our Father and we are children of God. However, if we don't run this race well, we should fear the judge of the living and the dead. So we even nuance fear to include an aspect of terror. Because I don't want to stand before the judge of the universe and not have both categorically in me. I don't need to fear him but I do need to fear what he's capable of. Now, we're just going to wrap this thing up. We're broaching the topic of submission here. 
We went long today because I refuse to shortcut. I'm not going to do that. You guys are owed more than that. You pay me here to do my job, and my job requires that I take no shortcuts. Oh, well, I can't preach this sermon. Well, I could have cut Ruth off, but her word was from the Lord for this body. Then we're going to listen to Ruth just as much as we're going to listen to me. I don't know what to do. Like, we have to do better as a body. We have to define terminology. We have to talk about the fact that nuance exists in this conversation. This is the beginning of the conversation on submission. It's not the end of the conversation on submission. Are we, uh, do we understand? Okay. More often than not, church, we're going to be required to make judgments on how we should submit. The vaccine was a great, like, case study very recent and there was all different views on what we should and should not do i don't care where you stand as long as you know you're being obedient to god that's my perspective as your pastor you want me to write you a letter so that you could be exempt i'll do that you want me to lay hands on you and pray for you so that you could do your job after you get the vaccine i'll do that too we're talking case by case Case-by-case basis with nuance, right? Because difficulties exist when it comes to topics like submission and how it plays out in our lives every single day. We're not going to just shortcut, here's the answer, do this, and all will be well. That would be a failure on my part. Different approaches to morality and ethics exist within the church. Ethics is one of the most difficult things to navigate. And ethics are very closely tied to morality. Different approaches to morality and ethics in the church, let alone outside of it, will lead to different points of view on this topic. So our speech must be seasoned with salt, and we must be willing to listen to one another if we're going to continue the conversation Deal? Okay. Ultimately, submission to God here in this body is our greatest priority. And I believe that if that is the case, then we will be able to honor and love all who cross our path. So we're going to push pause here. I'm going to pray. There should be donuts in the back. Hang out. Take off. Enjoy the sun. Do what you got to do. No song at the end, right? Yeah, it's, we're wait. We're wait. No, we're, we're wet. Well, yeah, there you go. If you got to go, go. If not, stick around. Let me close. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the fact that there is a desire to commune, to spend time as a family, to continue to praise the name of the Lord. Father, we have entered your gates this morning with thanksgiving in our heart, and now we will shout for joy because praise is on our lips. So God, I just thank you that you have begun the conversation on submission. I pray that you would continue to give us what we need to navigate it. And uh, Father, just bless the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now don't go anywhere. You're going to sing with me. I'm going to sing with you.